Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord spoke to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, My servant Moses is dead. Now proceed to cross the Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the Israelites. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon I have given to you, as promised to Moses, from the wilderness and the Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, and the land of the Hittites, to the great sea in the west, shall be your territory. No one shall be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for, I, for you shall put this people in possession of the land that I swore to their ancestors to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to act in accordance with all the law that my servant Moses commanded you. Do not turn from, the right, from it to the right hand or to the left, so that you may be successful wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth. You shall meditate it on, on it on the day and night, so that you may be careful to act in accordance with all that is written in it. For then you shall make your way prosperous, and then you shall be successful. I hereby command you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened or dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Our second reading is from James chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? Show by your good life that your works are done with gentleness born of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not be boastful and false to the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly and spiritual devilish. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there will also be disorder and wickedness of every kind. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceful, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace for those who make peace. Amen. So a few years ago, there were a series of photographs of some female SS personnel in Nazi Germany. The women were off duty, relaxing, decorating a Christmas tree. Reflections and discussions were had about Germany as a nation, about the women as individuals. What had allowed such idleness and unconsciousness in the stark context of the violence that they were otherwise engaged in. Further discussions went on to try and decipher how, what should we make of them now? Who were they? How did they end up as SS personnel? What happened to them? How did they rationalize 
what they were a part of? How did they live with it afterwards? Did they live? Today is all about remembering, about remembrance. But what the photograph provides is not an actual memory, but a moment frozen in time. Because when we remember, what we're actually doing is piecing together parts of what we recall. That's why we say remember. We are rejoining the members of a whole. And this whole is supposed to make meaningful sense to us. But we weren't there. We don't know what emotions these women were feeling or experiences that had led them to this point. And 100 years on, what does this Remembrance Day actually mean? I mean, no one can literally remember anymore. Who is left to recall these or any other actual days that started this yearly act of remembrance? The photos are a moment in time. There is no one left that can actually recall. But as Christians, we are used to this. We are called to remember all the time. A birth, a life, a teacher, a supper, a sacrifice, a submission, a victory. None of which we were actually physically there to experience, yet we recall it faithfully each week. Piecing together moments into something that gives us meaning that evokes a response. <coughs> this remembering, is it simply about looking back? <coughs> or is it about letting these moments, these fragments, affect us today? Motivating us to become active responders, pushing us to move forward? How will we let these memories and thoughts move us? What actions will they prompt us to take? World War I was supposed to be the war to end all wars. And then 20 years later, the Second World War happened with a new reality of warfare. In World War I, the fighting and the violence was confined largely to the front lines. But the Second World War, anywhere could be the front line. The wholesale devastation from the air of towns, cities, and their civilian populations people in their homes, in their workplace, people at rest and play, women and children, joined the war dead on all sides of the conflict. I'd like to read you a war poem this morning, a poem by Charles Sawley, To Germany. You are blind like us. You're hurt, no man designed, and no man claimed the conquest of your land but grope us both through fields of thought confined. We stumble and we do not understand. You only saw your future bigly planned and we, the tapering past of our own mind and each other's dearest ways we stand and hiss and hate and the blind fight the blind. When it is peace, then we may view again with new art with new one eyes, each other's truer form, and wonder, grown more loving, kind, and warm, 
we grasp firm hands and laugh at old pain when it is peace. But until peace, the storm, the darkness, and the thunder, and the rain. So I would call myself an aspiring pacifist. I cannot bring myself to agree or condone violence of any kind. There was a monument down near Trafalgar Square of a woman called Edith Cavill. Edith Cavill was a Christian nurse, a matron in enemy-occupied Belgium during the First World War. And she was executed in 1915 for enabling 200 Allied soldiers to escape. Remembrance Day is tricky. How do you pay your respects to all those who fell in the wars without subscribing to a propagandist nature of remembrance, the glorification of war, and the unavoidable political entwinement of it all? Armistice Day is a celebration of peace. Yet, it has become entangled with messages of war. And so we need to question ourselves, why are we doing this? What are we remembering? The night before Edith Cavill's execution, she told the chaplain who shared communion with her, another act of remembrance. Standing as I do, in view of God and eternity, I realize that it's not patriotism, that patriotism is not enough. I must have no hatred or bitterness towards anyone. This inscription on her monument when I moved to London struck me. It moved me, and I wish to remember her. I remarked already that remembrance is of a war that was supposed to end all wars. So I believe in a statement of never again, and that this should be what comes to our mind when we remember. But I, at least, now feel as if remembrance has been turned into a drum roll of support for campaigns and current, war current wars. Don't get me wrong, I think people who buy red poppies are doing it with the best of intentions. I have one myself. Yet our government continues to send soldiers into war without providing vital care afterwards. And in brutal honesty, the poppy appeal enables this to continue. So what is the answer? To stop wearing them, withdraw our support, to challenge the structures, that are answerable to these problems? Is it both? I don't have the answers. That's why I'm wearing both red and white poppies. I don't know. However, I am conscious of the fact that at Remembrance, we are remembering a declaration of peace, not of war. And it is my faith that has led me to this place. One blogger, when we were reflecting on remembrance, wrote, Christians are well used to remembering every week in churches such as this. We remember the one person who died for us all. We remember that our response to love God shows us in the death of Christ is to be reinvigorated for the future. 
for the task of changing our lives, our community and our world by transforming it for the better. Except we don't always do that, do we? And is it any wonder in this culture of certainty and fundamentalism when it comes to scripture that is at best dualistic? How are we supposed to decide when the text that leads us is confusing? Our two passages this morning demonstrated this duality perfectly. And in my sermons before, I've mentioned mimetic theory. And the passage in James, and another passage from James that comes just after, captures this idea of the Gerards of mimetic theory. The idea that desire inevitably leads to rivalry. And that basically we hum humans will fight over anything, whether honor or money, ideology, relationships. And at times we do so to the death. The gist being that violence in the world and in scripture is not of God's making, but the human race. That there is no such thing as divine violence or wrath, as some might call it. And that our curse is mimetic theory, mimesis. If you own something that you see as desirable, and if I imitate that desire, I want it because you've got it. We both cannot possess the same object, and so this leads to a rivalry, to competition, maybe even to violence. And in the end, someone will lose. And when we take it to its extremes, we see war, and everyone loses. James says, who is wise and understanding among you? Show by your good life that your works are done with gentleness, born of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not be boastful and false to truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but it is, un it is earthly, unspiritual and devilish. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there will also be disorder and wickedness of every kind. In James 4 it says, those conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? Do they not come from your craving, cravings that are at war within you? You want something and do not have it, so you commit murder. And you covet something and cannot obtain it, so you engage in disputes and conflicts. You do not have because you do not ask. Both these passages demonstrate exactly what Girard is talking about, this idea that we desire and that leads us into conflict. It leads us into war. Yet, show by your good life the works, your works are done with gentleness born of wisdom. The wisdom from above is pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, and without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace for those who make peace. James is telling us that the harvest of righteousness 
is peace, if it's sown in peace. He says that conflicts and selfish desire are not from God, but from our own hearts. And yet we come to our other reading from Joshua, a bold commission to capture a promised land, a promise of simplicity, that wherever they tread, the land will be theirs, that this is what God has ordained for them. This is what God has promised them for their ancestors, a people without a land, a new hope, and a place to belong. Seemingly, regardless, forever who, for whoever is currently living there. In Joshua it says, proceed, across the, to, proceed, proceed to cross the Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving them, to the Israelites. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, as I promised Moses. None shall be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. God seems to call them to be strong and courageous. That we will put, he will put the people of Israel in possession of this land. The United Convention describes genocide as the following acts committed with an intent to destroy in whole or in part, a national, ethical, racial or religious group. By killing members of the group, causing serious bodily mental harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about physical destruction in whole or in part, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. These have all been done in the name of our Christian God. And passages like the ones in Joshua have been used to justify these acts. Because like I said, at best, the Bible is dualistic. So how do we reconcile ourselves with books like Joshua? Should we? On today, this day, what is it that we should be remembering? What I see in Joshua is a tension of ideals between reality and theology. One commentary describes Joshua 1 as presenting a pure theological ideal that is completely unbothered by economic, political, military realities. Yet the realities of the following chapters are not as neat as the promised land theology suggests. Because to receive the promise, they are faced with a choice. Either they must be in military conflict or accommodate and compromise. But neither of these fall in line with the simplicity of the promise that they hold to. The same commentator goes on to say that Israel, like every such land-seeking community, does not want to base its claim on land to sheer act of violence, but on a respected, credible legitimacy that reaches the intention of the gods. How familiar does this seem? 
even now. Reasons of war legitimized by our modern gods in the Western world, gods of, in, of national interest and sovereignty. The God language of these texts simply reflects the fact that man's desire is often placed upon God. We do not want to admit that it is greed that drives us. And so we place it on the God of national defense. But how should we respond to a threat? I can hear the question being asked. If someone does desire what I have, what we have, should we just give in? Just pass it over, open our borders, defend our borders, preempt an attack, defend what we have, fight for our freedom, even if it leads to violence. This is the basis for just war theory, a theory I have a lot of sympathy with. As I said, I am an aspiring pacifist. The following rules describe the application to justice to, of war. Just cause, all aggression is condemned. Only defensive war is legitimate, just intention. The only legitimate intention is to secure a just peace for all involved. Neither revenge nor conquest, nor, conquest, nor economic gain, nor ideological supremacy are justified. Last resort. War may only be entered upon when all negotiations and compromise have failed. Formal declaration. Since the use of military force is the prerogative of governments and not private individuals, a state of war must be officially declared by the highest authorities. Limited objectives. If the purpose is peace, then unconditional surrender or destruction of a nation's economic or political institutions is an unwarranted objective. Proportionate means. The weaponry and the force used should be limited to what is needed to repel the aggression and deter future attacks. That is to say, to secure a just peace. Total or unlimited war is ruled out. Non-combatant immunity. Since war is an official act of gov government, only those who are officially agents of governments may fight, and individuals not actively contributing to the conflict, including prisoners of war and casualties, as well as civilian non-participants, should be immune from attack. So what do you think of these? Do they seem reasonable? Sensible, even? I mean, we aren't talking about genocide here. We aren't talking about land grabbing. This is not God-ordained violence to secure a promised land. Yet, it is often the biblical, seemingly God-ordained violence that many who would align themselves to Christianity use as a personal reason to ascribe to these justifications. In the end, what I've realized is it all comes down to how you read scripture. Or, which way of reading scripture you sign up to. Both our readings this morning came from the same Bible. Both views are held within its pages, within the followers that read it text, reads it text, and find meaning in them. 
And I get it, I really do. I see the justification for acts of violence and war. I see and I understand the apparent need. However, today, I cannot forget Edith. I cannot forget Charles Sawley. I cannot forget Wilfred Owen, who wrote the words, my friend, you would not tell with such high zest to children ardent for some desperate glory, the old lie. Dolce e decorum est pro patria mori, which means the old lie. It is sweet and fitting to die for one's country. I don't want to forget about the past, but I want to redeem the past. Because I have stood there with the disciple Peter, with the disciple Peter sword in my hand, justification and righteous anger in my heart, and I have received the comment, no more of this. How might the years have been different if we, as a collective people, had responded differently? If we had sought the counsel and comfort available in a common response that embodied partnership with people of other nations to reserve no more to react in kind and victimise others to embrace a common future. Is that not what the kingdom of God looks like? What if the church had read scripture differently? Saw that within the entire canon of scripture there is not a duplicitous God that acts violently and peaceably in turns, but two paradigms, a human one and a divine one, stories that reflect the mimetic desire and the other a critique and even a renunciation of that violence and sacrifice. Because in the end it seems that people choose one or the other because you can't really serve two masters. So what is it you are remembering today? What God is it that you believe in? Could this act of remembering be an antidote to violence? Those women in the photos, can we resist the temptation to vilify them? Can we put them together as whole people? Can we remember them through the work of forgiveness? I do not say that flippantly. I know that that is an enormous task and it is not undertaken lightly. As I said before, I don't have all the answers, but I will remember. I'll remember Edith. I'll remember Charles Sawley and Wilfred Owen. I'll remember B Bob Muller, a Vietnam veteran who speaks out against war. I'll remember Tulsi Gabbard. I'll remember the IVAW, the Iraq veterans against war. And I'll remember those German women. And I remember that Jesus has set a place for all of them at his table. And this is the God that I believe in. Richard is going to lead us in our intercessions this morning. Let us all pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we know you might feel hungry. Like everybody says bad words about black people, all about poor people, homeless people, whole people, disabled people, the people with nasty illness like lipstick, or any kind of disease. Forgive this sin, 
Those people are all in the kingdom of God. Help us to protect the human rights for everybody in the world. Help us to know about the principle of justice. Jesus, you are on trail. Forgive your enemies. We want justice for people in Colby prisons. Help us the Christian to be like you. Help us to feel. Help us to be free. We need trust one another. Help us get a human right for all other people. Social fight for our country. For freedom of Britain. We remember this. We are happy to be free in other countries. Celtic are killed in battle. Relatives are destroyed. Children lose their homes. Classes are in debt. All them must make you shared. We pray for all the world of countries. We want a human rights for everybody. Because a human rights means freedom. We know that justice and freedom and truth and the human rights be all belonging to you. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.